And now it's time for my science, history, and technology segment I call Cool Shit. This time will be my first installment of Fuck Cancer. Cool. 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 Shit. Cool. Cool. Shit. Serious. This is the first installment of Fuck Cancer. You say hi, I say hello. But if you put them next to each other, hi, hello, you can see that technically they are different words. However, they activate the same part of the brain. How the hell does this relate to cancer? I'll explain. Anandiamide, hereto referred to as AEA, is a neurotransmitter that tells cancer cells, Hi. For the good of the body, you should really kill yourself. The cancer cell, having no fear of death, says, By Jove, I thought there was something wrong. That's why I installed all these extra doors just for you. I will commence to exterminate myself with extreme prejudice. You see, when the cell goes cancerous, it increases the number of CB receptors, AEA, Hi. then bonds to the CB receptor and jacks the cancer cell up. If I start to lose you, just remember, AEA good. AEA kill cancer. AEA Hi. kills the cancer cell in a process called apoptosis or programmed cell death. AEA Hi. causes the mitochondria inside cancerous cells to unravel. Cells get their energy to function from their mitochondria. Without its mitochondria, the cell quickly dies. So why do people still get cancer? Well, there are a couple of problems. One, if you're sick, stressed, or ill in any way, your AEA high production goes down. Two, unlike most neurotransmitters, AEA high is produced on demand and is not stored in interstitial tissue, or in layman's terms, the tissue between the cells. Three, AEA high. is quickly broken down by a substance called fatty acid amide hydrolase, or hereto referred to as FAAH. You really are a fat bastard. So what can you do? Well, you could eat right and exercise and still you might get cancer, albeit less often. Or you could take a supplement that has shown to not only inhibit FAAH, you really are a fat bastard, but also says hello, hello, hello. instead of hi, hi, to the CB receptors on the cancer cells and therefore induce programmed cell death, killing the cancer cell. What is this supplement and why haven't you heard about it? The truth is, you probably have. You just thought it was a bunch of new age hooey. That sounds like a bunch of new age hooey. The truth is, the two substances I mentioned are found in cannabis. That's right, cannabis. Delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol can take the place of AEA in the body and cause a cancer cell to undergo programmed cell death. And cannabidiol can inhibit the degradation 
of AEA Hi. in the body by blocking FAAH. You really are a fat bastard. Thus increasing your levels of AEA. Hi. But I don't want to get high, you say. Most of the high feeling comes from the tetrahydrocannabinol, better known as THC. So you could take cannabidiol, strong am I with the force, to help boost your own AEA levels, high, without that high feeling. Still not convinced? Chronic inflammation and free radical oxidation can cause many types of cancer. Cannabidiol, strong am I with the force, is not only one of the most powerful anti-inflammatory agents in the world, it is also a more powerful antioxidant than either vitamin C or vitamin E. Oh, and while we're at it, fuck MRSA. Bacteria. You might not see them, but they're there. MRSA, short for methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, is a bacteria that can cause difficult-to-treat infections, since it doesn't respond to many antibiotics. Many healthy people carry MRSA on their skin. Bacteria. You might not see them, but they're there. But problems arise when multi-drug resistant strains infect people with weak immune systems through an open wound. In the worst cases, the bug spreads throughout the body, causing a life-threatening infection. To make matters worse, resistance to antibiotics is rapidly increasing, and some strains are now even immune to vancomycin, a powerful antibiotic that is normally used only as a last resort. When extracts from five major cannabinoids were applied to bacterial cultures of six strains of MRSA, bacteria. You might not see them, but they're there. they discovered that cannabinoids were as effective at killing the bacteria as vancomycin and other antibiotics. Conveniently, of the five cannabinoids tested by the researchers, the two most effective ones also happen to be non-psychoactive, meaning that they can't get you high. What this means is, we could use fiber hemp plants that have no use as a recreational drug at all to cheaply and easily produce potent antibiotics. Cannabinoids could quickly be developed as a treatment for skin infections, provided the non-psychoactive variants are used. The most practical applications of cannabinoids would be as topical agents to treat ulcers and wounds in a hospital environment, decreasing the burden and use of antibiotics. However, if you are too proud to change your mind on the use of non-psychoactive cannabis oils to treat your MRSA, there is another technique that has shown promise. Letting fucking maggots eat out the infection. I don't know about you, but I'm taking the cannabis oil. For full disclosure, I personally have never taken any form of cannabis, but it turns out the dirty hippies were right. So time for me and you to get over the massive amount of shit we as kids were forced to swallow about marijuana. And if you're still of the mind that there's no way all that good stuff can come from a plant, just remember that 50% of cancer drugs and 70% of all drugs from the last 20 years are plant-based. So next time you get the chance to vote on medical marijuana, vote no on cancer and yes on cannabis. Legalize it by Bob Marley.
This time, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Buchanan and Jimmers, from the Culture Dig podcast as we discuss the 2015 Gold Flush and Good Gooner Baiters Save the World. All right. Now we're going to do cool shit. Cool shit. Cool, cool shit. I just want, I want to talk about the 2015 Gold Flush. Not Gold Rush, Gold Flush. Ooh, what's that? British feces could contain uh, $741 million of gold, silver, and platinum. I like that. Scientists have found that precious metals like gold, silver, and platinum can be extracted from sewage to, pre- to prevent a small portion from being flushed down the toilet, even though they have to flush it first to get it. Although the prospect of digging through human excrement, hunting for the gleam of gold, may seem unpalatable. You mean a shitty job? <laughs> the figures show it could be a surprisingly lucrative enterprise. An eight-year study by the U.S. Geological Survey found that levels of precious metals and feces was comparable to those found in some commercial mines. That is some rich shit. <laughs> in fact, mining all of Britain's excretions could produce waste metals which are worth around uh, 510 million pounds a year. Uh, trace amounts of metals are found in cosmetics, shampoo, and even clothes. Some food and drinks also now contain flakes of gold and silver. Tiny metal particles... What drinks are these? Huh? <laughs> what drinks are these? Apparently I'm drinking uh, the wrong things. Goldschlager. Okay. Goldschlager. Uh, tiny metal particles can also be dislodged from cutlery and from the gold and silver medical diagnostic tools which are used by doctors. Droolery, which is accidentally flushed down the toilet, also finds its way into the sewage system and does run off from local metal industries. All right, does this mean this is like the new 21st century gold rush is going to be a bunch of English people digging through shit? Yeah, on, like, where is all this, the gold and silver and platinum coming from? I, I shit. Brush their teeth I just then, read that. Cosmetics, yeah, no, 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 but you said it was from medical supplies, it was from accidentally flushed jewelry. Cosmetics, shampoos, even clothes, traces of, uh, traces of it in, in Wait, those. How do, how do cosmetics get flushed down the toilet? No, you absorb them into your skin. and then they eventually like, you shower up, or shit? No, Chris. it eventually ends up in your excrement. Any, any heavy metals you take in right. that don't get stored in your body, which is bad for you, you shit it out. Scientists in the U.S. believe that stripping human excrement of metals would not only provide a lucrative source of income, but would mean that the waste could be more safely used as fertilizer. Heavy metals is one of the problems with using human waste as fertilizer, uh, because it eventually builds up in the plants. And if you eat them, you'll get heavy metal poisoning. But taking the precious metals out, and then you can use it as Am I wrong to think, like, the entire, like, porn industry in Germany is, like, they're going to shoot their shiza videos and go mining afterwards? (laughs) Well... It would compile it even more. Okay, hey, y'all, there you go. It's uh, start a porn and be a miner. Dr. Kathleen Smith of the U.S. Geological Survey said, if you can get rid of some of the nuisance metals that currently limit how much of these biosolids we can use on fields and forests, and at the same time recover valuable metals and other elements, it's a win-win. There are metals everywhere. There are there in your hair products, detergents, even nanoparticles that are put in socks to prevent bad odors. It would also allow the precious metals to be found without the need for powerful chemicals, which carry ecological risk. Lots of these mining operations use harsh chemicals, and this wouldn't. Um, in 1989, the UK produced over one million one million one hundred thirty thousand tons of sludge dry solids, which averages about two uh, twenty kilograms generated by each person. Previous research estimates that the waste from 1 million Americans could, atta- could contain much as $13 million worth of metals. 1 million. Uh, that's a lot. I mean, okay, I'm also imagining this. We, you already have, like, the courtship process where, like, the girl's parents are like, oh, so what do you do for a living? I'm like, I 
digging shit. Oh, really? Like, is that a euphemism for something? No, no, I... I dig in shit. I, I go through people's shit, and I look for gold. Well, now you know what to get your wife for next Valentine's Day. Gold shit? No, just a box. The golden <laughs> turd. Um, if the equation was applied to Britain, it would mean that the metals worth half a billion pounds could be discovered each year. As well as flushing away precious metals, sewage also contains rare elements such as palladium and vanadium that are sought after for electrics and alloys. Um, to access the viability of mining sewage, the team of the U.S. Geological Survey collected samples from small towns in the Rocky Mountains. That's the good shit. And used a scanning electron microscope to observe microscopic quantities of gold, silver, and platinum. The eight-year study, which involved monthly testing of tre- treated sewage samples, found that one kilogram of sludge... I just love that. So, so we've already pillaged the Earth so much of its natural resources. <laughs> like, before we worry about space and go and look there, like, you know what? I'm not going to go to space yet. I'm going to dig through my own shit first. It's better than conflict minerals. No, you got that right. Um, the sludge contained about 0.4 milligrams gold, 28 milligrams of silver, uh, 638 milligrams of copper, and 49 milligrams of vanadium. That's just in one kilogram of sludge. Okay. The sewage treatment in Tokyo has already started extracting gold from sludge. That and does not surprise me. <laughs> yields rivaling those found in ore and some leading gold mines. Well, so, Jeff, do you realize this, is, this segment is quite literally... Cool. cool shit. Shit. I know. Oh, you're so brilliant. <laughs> That's two cookies for you, sir. Oh, God. Now I have these ideas like, you know, the Goonies. We won, like, the continuing show. It's going to be like going and looking for shit, isn't it? <laughs> Goonies never say die or shit. But basically, it means if it were in the rock, it would be com- commercially viable to mine it. So. Well, okay. How about, how about that, Jimmers? What are you thinking? <laughs> I wanted to talk about Fritz Haber. Has anyone here heard of Fritz Haber? That would be a negatory, good nope. buddy. Fritz Haber is the greatest scientist of all time. Whoa. He was, Whoa. He was a Prussian Jew who oh. he invented chemical warfare during oh, World I do War remember I. this guy now. Yeah. He invented uh, chemical warfare during World War I. Yeah. And then after the war, he went back to what became Germany, and he, um, because they had the crushing war debt of having lost World War I, he worked on a way to figure out how to pay all of the tributes that Germany had to pay. And one of the projects he worked on was trying to extract gold from seawater. Oh, and one yes. Of the things, one I of the things I've seen cited is that, um, I read this in, in the Guinness Book of World Records, is that all the gold in the world would fill an Olympic swimming pool. That's it. So the water in an Olympic swimming oh, yeah, pool, yeah. that's it. That's, that's the extent of all the gold we've extracted from the Earth. But it's supposed to be like the gold that's contained in seawater is several times that. It's exponentially in an order of magnitude more. And so he was trying to figure out how can we just build a filter to just filter seawater all day and extract all this gold. And he died before he developed any kind of system that was really workable. And um, they used uh, a pesticide he'd invented. It was called Zyklon oh, yeah. to kill basically lice. Zyklon B. And, yeah, and they took the scent out of it, and it became Zyklon B. And it was what was used during the Second World War during the Holocaust to, gas the Jews. to exterminate Jews and, and people who, who wanted to be killed by the National Socialists. Wow. So, like, the guy who invented the Zyklon gas that was used to kill all of the Jews was actually Jewish. And that guy also tried to basically create the Philosopher's Stone to make gold out of seawater. This is it. Yeah, it sounds like the same thing. The Philosopher's Poop. Well, here's what I'm saying. Like, there's all this gold and platinum and stuff, literally, in human feces. Like, I'm, I'm wondering how much more impressive I should be, this would be, than, like, just the gold that's in random crap all around us all the time. Like seawater. Well, there's a story from the Old West where there, were, there was a gold mine and it, and it 
started to dry up really quickly. And people hated the mud, this kind of grayish, annoying mud. They had to get rid of it all the time and throw it away. It was getting uh, getting clogged up in the in the, the thing where they filter the gold nuggets out. And, oh, my God, I fucking hate it. And one guy came along and said, I wonder what that is. And he tested it. Gold. The mud was full of silver. Oh, geez. Silver particles. All that mud they'd been bitching about and throwing over here. And they became very rich. <laughs> well, of course. That reminds me, there was a Western film, too, where they were... I can't remember. I want to say it was a. Uh, uh, it was a guy who's ultra conservative and talked to the empty chair at the RNC. Clint Eastwood. Oh, Clint Eastwood. I, want to say, I think Clint Eastwood. It was like spaghetti western from the '60s or something, where they they wanted to get gold, but they didn't actually want to mine for it. So they went underneath the floorboards of the local tavern, and everybody was dealing in nuggets of gold all the time. So all the particles are so malleable, like little oh. particles of <laughs> were like falling between the floorboards. So they just collected the gold that was falling through the floorboards continuously and became wealthy. <laughs> Wow. I can't remember the name of the movie. Uh, I've never uh, seen it. All right, next story. All right. Could Gunner Baiters save the world? Gunner Baiters. What's a Gunner Vader? A good, good question. Uh, the definition. I have the definition right here because I wonder if you'd ask. Gunner Baiting. Masturbating for long periods, often exceeding past six hours. Gunner Baiters normally have no social life because they masturbate for hours on end. Without chafing? <laughs> Watch out for chafing. Have you ever thought about how many hours a day you spend online and how much energy you consume in the process? It's well known how incredibly fast we run out of our natural resources and what's worse, how much they pollute in order to create energy. All the time you spend connected, you are adding to their use. At Pornhub, we realize that by offering our users millions of hours of adult content, we are part of the problem. That's why we're going to show men how they can save the planet while doing what they do best. Pornhub presents The Wank Band The first gadget for the wearable tech era that allows men to love the planet by loving themselves A device that generates power by motion and adapts naturally to your routine working during your most relaxed and self-gratifying moment of the day and generating electricity from a natural source Manpower Here's how it works The band contains a valve with a small weight inside that generates and stores energy when moved in an up and down motion and we all know what exercise does that move, right? Now, just plug any device you need to charge into the USB port on the band. Smartphone, laptop, camera, tablet, and voila! You are creating dirty energy. Organize eco-orgies, turn your jobless roommates into a productive person, and now, when your partner catches you in the act, you can simply say that you're just trying to save on the electric bill. The possibilities are endless. Sign up as a beta tester, and soon you'll be able to take advantage of the special rewards program we have in store for our wanking warriors. And of course, the wank band is 100% unisex, and it works just as well for women. Ladies and gentlemen, now the power is in your hand. Pornhub. Stop jacking off, and start jacking on. Okay, Jeff, was this by any chance released on April Fool's Day? No, it was released before that. It was uh, it was actually an, a YouTube ad for one of the one of the like I probably watched the Young Turks or something. I mean, you, you have those flashlights where you basically jerk off the flashlight yeah. to get it going. Yeah. <laughs> have you ever seen those? Are there flashlights? You, you do this. Light. You have to shake it like oh, this. Oh yeah, okay. And like it works, but yeah. it, it's it charges while you're basically jerking so off linear it's like a flashlight. So, so apparently, yeah, like this is the more satisfying way. To get your electricity. Like a linear Faraday motor or some shit like that? Something like that. All right. And that is cool shit. Unless anybody else had something to say. Uh, I'm done. We feel really guilty about oppressing all these other countries in the world and having the privilege of living in the first world at the same time. 
And so this is like how we kind of, you know, like uh, uh, when I'm, I'm, you know, like set up all of my devices, my iPhone and my iPad and my laptop and everything at the same time so I can watch three different porn feeds and just jerk off for eight hours. Uh, like, I'm actually kind of saving the world. Baby, right there. Baby, right there. I was speaking hypothetically. <laughs> hypothetically speaking. Talk to me <laughs> by Stephen Lynch. I came down to the breakfast table Felt like I could die Tried so hard But wasn't able To look you in the eye For I am feeling so much shame Yes, I have brought disgrace Can tell I've soiled my good name By the look upon your face Well, it seems last night you caught me spanking it No use denying it, I was really cranking It will dry your eyes, don't be so sad If you could just forgive me and talk to me, Dad Talk to me, Dad in the first episode of Culture Dig, during our Dope Box segment, I was talking about the different types of green energy technologies that have been around for a while and should already be in use. Then Jimmer said... Yeah, you sound like this is a really pressing thing. And I'm just saying, I've heard recently, it was like a year ago, a couple years ago, do you remember this? They're talking about we'd pass some sort of threshold. Um, I feel like I've read in, uh, have you guys read Freakonomics, the sequel? Negative. It's, it's super, oh yeah, they have, they have the documentary. In the sequel, Super Freakonomics, they talk about basically we're already fucked and we need to start looking at different avenues, things that seem almost like out of left field, not to reduce carbon emissions that actually we need to take carbon out of the atmosphere at this point. So they talk about like replicating volcanoes or, or you know, giant filters. And now I will answer. So this time on Cool Shit, how pre-Columbian Amazonians could save the world. I'm going to tell you a story. A story about black gold. Not Texas tea, not oil, but Amazonian soil. Satellites have shown us that most of the dirt in the Amazon was actually blown across the Atlantic from the Sahara, and is one of the reasons that the soil in the Amazon is so poor. There are three types of soil naturally found in the Amazon. Acrosol, oxisol, and cement, spelled with a P which form a topsoil that is not very useful for growing staple food crops. Topsoil is the upper, outermost layer of soil and is where almost all the plants we and farm animals eat are grown. Topsoil is a fragile thing and is subject to wind and water erosion, depletion of nutrients due to over-farming, and scarier still, it's usually only 2 to 8 inches thick. Think about that. Everyone on Earth is only 2 to 8 inches from starvation and death. And only around 13% of the earth has even those 2 to 8 inches of topsoil necessary to grow food. So what gives? How did millions of people survive off the food they could grow in such shitty soil? Well, the answer is, they didn't. I said that there were three types of soil naturally found in the Amazon. But there's one that's unnaturally found. That's right, pre-Columbian peoples made soil, called terra preta. Terra preta, literally black earth or black land in Portuguese, and owes its name to its very high charcoal content, and was made by adding a mixture of charcoal, bone, and manure to the otherwise relatively infertile Amazonian soil. It is very stable and remains in the soil for thousands of years. Terra preta soils were created by humans between 450 BCE and 950 CE. 
As we discussed, most topsoil is between two and eight inches deep. Terra Preta can reach depths of six and a half feet deep. Now, I've known about Terra Preta since around 2000, when Terra Preta was its only name. Now, Terra Preta is often referred to, by the scientists that have been studying it, as biochar. What is biochar? Biochar is the base on which Terra Preta is made. Biochar is charcoal produced by heating organic material at high temperatures and limited oxygen. It is a stable product, very rich in carbon, which is used to lock carbon into the soil. Professor Tim Flannery, 2007 Australian of the Year, described biochar as the single most important initiative for humanity's environmental future. It allows us to address food security, the fuel crisis, and climate change, all in one immensely practical manner. What are the benefits of biochar? Sowing biochar into the soil increases the water holding capacity of the soil, increases crop production up to 300%, increases soil carbon levels, increases soil pH, decreases aluminum toxicity, decreases soil emissions of the greenhouse gases carbon dioxide, methane, which is more than 20 times more powerful than carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas, and nitrous oxide, which is 298 times more powerful than carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas. Biochar also improves soil conditions for earthworm populations, improves fertilizer use efficiency, positively changes the microbiology of the soil, and increases the liquid carbon pathway. Let's examine those last two for a minute. The liquid carbon pathway is a symbiotic relationship between mycorrhizal fungi and 90% of all plants that have developed over the last 420 million years. Plants will purposely produce extra carbohydrates, simple plant sugars, then extrude that surplus into the soil to feed the fungi. Mycorrhizal fungi cannot live without a host plant and, in exchange for this sugar, the fungi will mine and transport nutrients and water back to its hosts. For every cubic meter of soil, these fungi will send out as much as 12,000 miles of root-like projections so that they infiltrate every area of the soil. Fungi can access nutrients and water unavailable to the larger plant roots. Nurturing this symbiotic relationship with biochar is essential for long-term climate change mitigation and reversal. One of the most notable results in the shift in weather patterns has been a deluge of rain followed by a drought. Not only does the biochar itself absorb more water, but it can also establish and nurture the growth of mycorrhizal fungi. Mycorrhizal fungi produce glomalin, a sticky substance that cements soil particles together, creating good passageways for air and water infiltration, allowing soils to absorb and retain more water. Then when drought follows and water becomes more tightly held by soil particles, it is the fungi that can send its roots into the small crevices of the soil and extract and accumulate molecules of water and transport it back to the thirsty plants. In a similar way, the fungi transport nutrients back to the plants. Fungi can use its acids to release nutrients from the soil and even rocks, transforming rock minerals into formats now usable by the plants. Likewise, there is a certain nutrient that only bacteria can extract from the soil, and the fungi will exchange sugar for the nutrients that plants need in a complex symbiotic exchange. The study of this relationship has shown that soils under perennial crops that are allowed to fully develop contain more available nutrients than neighboring soils on which agricultural chemicals have been used. A study done at the University of Illinois showed that agricultural chemicals kill or reduce soil microbes, resulting in a net loss of soil carbon. As the mycorrhizal fungi go deeper into the soil to mine nutrients and water for the plants, they deposit more and more carbon in the form of glomalin, a substance that is believed to be quite stable once it is deposited, and is what the term liquid carbon pathway refers to.
The more mature the relationship is between the plants and the microbes, the more volume of soil is accessed on behalf of the plants by the microbes, and the bigger and more reliable is the corresponding crop productions. According to research done by Dr. Christine Jones of Australia, pasture soils with healthy liquid carbon pathway associations have been increasing the amount of carbon that they sequester beneath the grasses each year. Currently, some pastures have been sequestering as much as 32 tons of CO2 per hectare per year. This makes biochar even more key to the reversal of climate change because biochar enables this vitally important process. And in areas where all the mycorrhizal fungi have been killed by herbicides, biochar can be inoculated with the mycorrhizal fungi to return them to full productivity. Biochar can sequester carbon in the soil for hundreds to thousands of years. Researchers have estimated that sustainable use of biochar could reduce 12% of current anthropomorphic emissions. Basically, that means, without really trying that hard, and without stepping on too many toes, we can make a 12% dent in the greenhouse gas emissions. But fuck that. Let's put on some hard sole boots and stomp some toes. Mainly the coal, oil, and farming industries. Biochar can be used in place of coal. The gases released while making biochar can be made into a synthetic natural gas, a.k.a. syngas. Syngas can be turned into bio-oil, which can be used to make transportation fuels such as methanol, hydrogen, biodiesel, and gasoline substitutes. Given the fact that the byproduct of making biochar is syngas, and if your goal is to make syngas through biochar, the byproduct is biochar, this ends up making the entire process not just carbon neutral, but carbon negative, which is a plus. And as stated above, it drastically reduces the need for fertilizer and prevents the fertilizer from being washed away and polluting our water supplies. So what do we use to make biochar? There are two plants that I think are prime subjects. The first is bamboo. Bamboo grows incredibly quickly, which is one of the reasons it is often used to make sustainable, eco-friendly products. Replanting bamboo is fairly easy thanks to its swift growth rate. The spreading root structures allow one rootstock to produce several shoots, permitting horizontal growth. Some species can literally grow 12 inches per day. If you actually had the patience to sit there all day, you would notice the growth by the end of it. Bamboo is a useful plant in addition to its income-producing capabilities. It's a perennial. You don't have to replant it each year. It's an evergreen and therefore photosynthesizes year-round, removing carbon dioxide from the air even in winter, and can even rejuvenate soils depleted by overfarming. The second plant is hemp. No, not the high-as-balls hemp. But industrial, you'd die from smoke inhalation before you got high hemp. Industrial hemp is the number one biomass producer on Earth. It yields 10 tons per acre in approximately four months. It's a woody plant containing 77% cellulose. Wood only has 60% cellulose. And beyond biochar, hemp is refined into products such as hemp seed food, hemp oil, wax, resin, rope, cloth, pulp, paper, fuel, and new potent antibiotics in the fight against antibiotic-resistant staph and MRSA. Why is this shit still illegal? Oh yeah, money and politics. But let's save that story for another episode. Studies so far have shown that the greatest positive effect of biochar applications have been in highly degraded and nutrient-depleted soils. So in conclusion, my plan would be to use every form of green energy-producing technology, again, that's another episode, then biochar poor soils first to grow more bamboo and hemp to create a cycle of biocharring and slowly turn poor soil areas into farmable and grazable land and bring back the buffalo because they are delicious and nutritious. Then I'd use the newly created hemp and bamboo fields to biochar the already productive soils and create super productive soils and keep going until we can give a big fuck off to climate change, fossil fuels, and world hunger. The world could be better than we have ever imagined. 
We just need to fix what we fucked and keep going with scientific footprints in the sand. And this time, it won't be just a dream. Saved from bacteria by the skin of shark's teeth. Did you know that sharks don't have teeth? Say what? They don't have teeth, or at least not teeth like we have. Shark's teeth are actually specialized scales, and their mouth is not the only place you find specialized scales. A shark's skin is covered in little teeth-like scales called dermal denticles. Say what? Say what again? Say what again? I dare you! In fact, shark skin is so rough, it's the original sandpaper and was used by carpenters since time immemorial. Japanese swordsmiths used ray, skate, and shark skin to add grip to the katana, so when the samurai's hands got bloody, his sword remained steadfast and firmly held. Now, a whale's skin is easily mucked up with barnacles, algaes, bacteria, and other sea creatures. Ew, seriously? That is so gross. But sharks, on the other hand, stay squeaky clean. Although these parasites can touch a shark's skin, they can't take hold and thus simply wash away. Now, scientists have printed that pattern on an adhesive film that will repel bacterial pathogens from hospitals and public restrooms. Part 2 of Fuck MRSA just snuck up on you. Patented by Sharklet Technologies, a Florida-based biotech company. Holy shit, good things can come out of Florida? The film, which is covered with microscopic diamond-shaped bumps, is the first surface topography proven to keep bacteria at bay. In tests in a California hospital, for three weeks the plastic sheeting's surface prevented dangerous microorganisms such as E. coli and Staphylococcus aureus from establishing colonies large enough to infect humans. Bacteria have an easier time spreading out on smooth surfaces, says CEO Joe Bagan. We think they come across this surface and make an energy-based decision that this is not the right place to form a colony. Because it doesn't kill the bacteria, there is also little chance of microbes evolving resistance to it. Hey, it worked for sharks for 40 million years. Oh no, now you did it. The young earth creationist Christian scientists will now come out in favor of bacterial infections. Good job. Anyways, this is good news for hospitals. More infections from drug-resistant superbacterias like MRSA, a potentially fatal strain of staph, are becoming commonplace. Ew, seriously? That is so gross. But that's not all the technology based on shark skin denticles can do. Another function of natural shark skin denticles is to reduce drag, and some aircraft, navy, oil, and cargo ships have started experimenting with denticle-like surfaces and expect significant fuel savings as a result. Our next story, it's no pottery barn. Gobekli Tepe is an archaeological site at the top of a mountain ridge in the southeastern Anatolia region of Turkey. The site includes two phases of ritual use dating back to the 10th to 8th millennia BCE, or before current era. During the first phase, or the pre-pottery Neolithic A, circles of massive T-shaped stone pillars were erected. 
more than 200 pillars in about 20 circles are currently known through geophysical surveys. Each pillar has a height of up to 6 meters, or 20 feet, and weighs up to 20 tons. They are fitted into sockets that are hewn out of the bedrock. In the second phase, or pre-pottery Neolithic B, the erected pillars are smaller and stood in rectangular rooms with floors of polished lime. Topographical scans have revealed that other structures next to the hill awaiting excavation probably date back to 14 to 15,000 years ago, the dates of which potentially extend backwards in time to the concluding millennia of the Pleistocene, predating the end of the last Ice Age. While the site formerly belongs to the earliest Neolithic or pre-pottery Neolithic A, up to now no traces of domesticated plants or animals have been found. The inhabitants are assumed to have been hunter-gatherers who nevertheless lived in villages for at least part of the year. So far, very little evidence of residential use has been found. Through the radiocarbon dating method, the end of layer 3 can be fixed at about 9000 BCE, but it is believed that the elevated location may have functioned as a spiritual center by 11,000 BCE or even earlier. The surviving structures, then, not only predate pottery, metallurgy, and the invention of writing or the wheel, they were built before the so-called Neolithic Revolution, in other words, the beginning of agriculture and animal husbandry around 9000 BCE. But the construction of Gobekli Tepe implies organization of an advanced order not hitherto associated with Paleolithic societies. Around the beginning of the 8th century BCE, Gobekli Tepe lost its importance. Aww. The advent of agriculture and animal husbandry brought new realities to human life in the area, and Gobekli Tepe apparently lost whatever significance it had had for the region's older foraging communities. But the complex was not simply abandoned and forgotten to be gradually destroyed by the elements. Instead, each enclosure was deliberately buried under as much as 300 to 500 cubic meters of refuse consisting mainly of small limestone fragments, stone vessels, and stone tools. Why the enclosures were buried is unknown, but it preserved them for prosperity. And now it's time for a quickie, pun intended. A new study by the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston. Wait, a show where I can talk about good things that came out of Florida and Texas? Holy shit! The study found that men who consumed between 85 and 170 milligrams of caffeine a day, or the equivalent caffeine level of 2-3 to three cups of coffee or tea, were 42% less likely to report erectile dysfunction than those who didn't consume any. <laughs> Men who consumed between 171 and 303 milligrams of caffeine a day were 39% less likely to report a soft, <laughs> unimpressive, <laughs> flaccid <laughs> outlook on sexuality. Caffeine sources in the study included tea, soda, and sports drinks, as well as coffee. But how does it work? Well, the caffeine makes the muscles in the penis more relaxed, and those relaxed peen muscles mean increased blood flow and boom, not tough acting tenactin, but stronger erections. Or, as the researchers put it, the suggested biological mechanism is that caffeine triggers a series of pharmacological effects that lead to the relaxation of the penile helicine arteries and the cavernous smooth muscles that line the cavernosal spaces, thus increasing penile blood flow. 
You know. <laughs> he has an erection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently, what your parents warned you about was right. Well, caffeine can get you up in the morning. It might keep you up at night as well. <sighs> oh, sorry. Just having a sip of tea. Erection by Narkill. This time, I'll tell you how to use others' narrow visions for broad application. You see, scientists are busy and competitive, and therefore don't communicate nearly enough with each other. That's where science nerds, like myself, come into play. We're not really qualified to do the research, but we can be smart enough to bridge and combine technologies together to accomplish tasks that neither, on their own, would be capable of. Now, I've had this idea that's been rolling around in my head for about a week, and it's a way that bolsters my biochar idea. If you haven't listened to my biochar piece from Sovcast for 5-22-2015, go to iTunes and search for Sovcast, then look for my Super Gorilla logo. If you don't like iTunes, go to sovcast.tumblr.com, facebook.com slash sovcast, or finally twitter.com slash seeker, the letter O, Veritas. There. Now that you're all caught up, let's continue. The first technology I want to talk about are ocean buoys that are used to generate electricity. There are many different types, and due to their efficiency and lack of conflict minerals, I think they'll play a big role in powering coastal areas around the world. There's one, though, that I particularly have in mind. It's called a CETO, or SETO, wave power. The SETO wave device consists of a single piston pump attached to the sea floor with a buoy tethered to the piston. Waves cause the float to rise and fall, generating pressurized water, which is piped to an onshore facility to drive hydraulic generators or run reverse osmosis water desalination. So in other words, the SETO wave power device can generate power and filter salt water into fresh water. I've thought of a better use for you. I want to pump water from the ocean to arid regions around the world. For long-distance or elevated pumping, we may need to include additional pumps powered by wind turbines, or as long as we're in the desert, where the sun shines hot and bright, let's use parabolic solar troughs. Parabolic solar troughs are another green technology that doesn't use conflict minerals. Basically, it's made up of curved mirrors that focus the sun's rays onto a pipe that contains oil. The oil is then circulated through the pipe and through a container holding salt. The oil in the pipe gets so hot it melts the salt. With this molten salt, water is turned into steam, and that steam powers a turbine. Don't let fossil fuel and nuclear power industries fool you into thinking they're high-tech, for they all generate heat to turn water into steam that turns turbines just like the parabolic solar trough. But I digress. Now that we've pumped the water to the desert, it goes in huge man-made reservoirs. The hot sun evaporates the water into the atmosphere and increases the instances of rain. The rain gets soaked up by the mycelium-filled biochar and starts growing the bamboo and hemp, which can be made into more biochar spreading until the desert is green. And as I stated in the other episode, biochar can sequester carbon for hundreds to thousands of years. But let's say we want to make sure it rains. Use the man-made reservoirs to not only evaporate water, but to grow algae. 
You can even use human wastewater to feed the algae, and in the process, the algae clean the water. As the algae blooms, it releases dimethyl sulfide into the atmosphere, which is used in cloud seeding as a nucleation point. Nucleation in this instance being a thing to which water vapor can cling to or condense until it forms a drop of water heavy enough to fall as rain. Now that you have water in the atmosphere and a place for the water to nucleate, we're going to make it rain. Once the algae bloom has reached its zenith in a particular reservoir, you take a sample to receive the next batch of water. At this point, there are a few possibilities for the algae. Number one, hydrothermal liquefaction. Hydrothermal liquefaction employs a process that subjects harvested wet algae to high temperatures and pressure. Again, I'm seeing parabolic solar troughs coming to the rescue. Products of hydrothermal liquefaction include crude oil, which can be refined into aviation fuel, gasoline, or diesel fuel. The process converts between 50 and 70% of the algae's, oops, I went British there for a minute, algae's carbon into fuel. Other outputs include clean water, fuel gas, and nutrients such as nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. This type of fuel is carbon neutral. Numbers 2, 3, and 4, you need to first let the water completely evaporate, which does kill the algae. Okay, number 2, hexane. Now that the algae is dehydrated, a solvent such as hexane is used to extract energy-rich compounds like triglycerides from the dried material. Then the extracted compounds can be processed into fuel using standard industrial procedures. For example, the extracted triglycerides are reacted with methanol to create biodiesel via transesterification. Say that three times fast. The unique composition of fatty acids of each species of algae influences the quality of the resulting biodiesel and thus must be taken into account when selecting algal species. This type of fuel is carbon neutral. Number three. Come on, take a guess. Come on. That's right. You can make fucking biochar. Now, biochar made from algae doesn't sequester as much carbon as biochar made from bamboo or hemp. However, it does sequester a good amount and is more nutrient-dense than biochar made from bamboo and hemp, so it will help the other two grow bigger, better, faster. So it's a win-win and keep-on-winning solution. As I said in the other episode, biochar is not just carbon neutral, it's carbon negative. Number four, send it to Davy Jones' locker. To sequester the maximum amount of carbon, you could, once it's dried and dead, rehydrate the algae and pump it back out to sea, where it will sink to the bottom, where it and all of its carbon will stay for hundreds of years. So the next time someone tells you there's no hope and we should just give up, remember my motto. Think, learn, or get out of the way. To dream the impossible Fight the unbeatable foe To bear with unbearable sorrow To run where the brave dare not go To right the unrightable wrong This time, I'll tell you how glass kills bear, one robot trains for the singularity, and this sword's like totally tubular. Glass kills bear. 
Hugh Glass, who lived from 1780 to 1833, was an American fur trapper and frontiersman noted for his exploits in the American West during the first third of the 19th century. Glass was born in Pennsylvania to Irish parents. He was an explorer of the watershed of the Upper Missouri River in present-day North Dakota, South Dakota, and Montana. Glass was famed, most of all, as a frontier folk hero in his legendary cross-country trek. Glass's most famous adventure began in 1822 when he joined General Ashley's expedition to ascend the Missouri River as part of a fur trading venture. While scouting ahead of his trading partners for game, Glass was surprised by a grizzly bear mother with her two cubs. Before he could fire his rifle, the bear charged, picked him up, and threw him to the ground. Glass got up, grappled for his knife, and fought back, stabbing the animal repeatedly as the grizzly raked him time and time again with her claws. Glass managed to kill the bear with a knife. Let that be a lesson to you. Never give up. But was left badly mauled and unconscious. A man named Henry became convinced the man would not survive his injuries. Henry asked for two volunteers to stay with Glass until he died and then bury him. Bridger, then 19 years old, and Fitzgerald, then 23 years old, stepped forward and, as the rest of the party moved on, began digging his grave. Later claiming that they were interrupted in the task by attack by the Arikaras tribe, the pair grabbed Glass's rifle, knife, and other equipment and took flight. Bridger and Fitzgerald incorrectly reported to Henry that Glass had died. Despite his injuries, Glass regained consciousness. He did so only to find himself abandoned, without weapon or equipment, suffering from a broken leg, the cuts on his back exposing bare ribs, and all his wounds festering. Glass lay mutilated and alone more than 200 miles from the nearest American settlement at Fort Kiowa on the Missouri River. In one of the more remarkable treks known to history, Glass set his own leg, ow, wrapped himself in a bear hide his companions had placed over him as a shroud, and began to crawl. To prevent gangrene, Glass laid his wounded back on a rotting log and let maggots eat the dead flesh. Deciding that following the Grand River would be too dangerous because of hostile tribes, Glass crawled overland south towards the Cheyenne River, using Thunder Butte, a prominent landmark visible for miles, as a navigation tool. It would take him six weeks to reach the Cheyenne River. Glass survived mostly on wild berries and roots. On one occasion, he was able to drive two wolves from a downed bison calf and feasted on the meat. Aided by friendly Native Americans who sewed a bear hide, I'm sure it was good old-fashioned sterile bear hide, to his back to cover the exposed wounds, as well as providing him with food and a couple of weapons to defend himself. Glass made his way to the Cheyenne River, fashioned a crude raft, and floated down the river, eventually reaching the safety of Fort Kiowa. After a long recuperation, Glass sent out to track down and avenge himself against Bridger and Fitzgerald. When he found Bridger on the Yellowstone near the mouth of the Bighorn River, Glass spared him, purportedly because of Bridger's youth. When he found Fitzgerald, he discovered that Fitzgerald had joined the United States Army. Glass restrained himself because the consequences of killing a U.S. soldier was death. However, he did recover his rifle. Glass's survival odyssey has been recounted in numerous books. A monument to Glass now stands near the site of his mauling at the south shore of Shade Hill Reservoir on the forks of the Grand River. Glass would again return to the frontier as a trapper and fur trader, Later, he was employed as a hunter for the garrison at Fort Union. 
He was killed with his two fellow trappers in the winter of 1833 on the Yellowstone River, an attack by the Arikara. But even death couldn't stop Glass completely. After Glass's death, the Arikara tribe in April 1833 later tried to pass themselves off as friendly members of the Minutaris tribe to a party of trappers. However, Johnson Gardner, one of the trappers, recognized a rifle that one of the Indians had as the very rifle Glass got back from Fitzgerald after Fitzgerald and Bridger left him for dead in 1823. Alarmed by this, Gardner surmised that they were actually of the Arikaras tribe. The Arikaras were seized and executed in response to the death of Hugh Glass. And our next story, One Robot Trains for the Singularity. Computerized Precision for Deadly Melee Arts For thousands of years, nothing on Earth was deadlier with a sword than a human. People have since largely moved on from slicing weapons to firearms and explosives. But the art of swordsmanship remains a squarely human domain. Or at least it did, until researchers in Japan started teaching freaking robots how to swing swords. Have they not seen the Terminator? In April, Japan's Namiki Laboratory gave a robot arm a foam sword, paired it with high-speed mechanical eyes, and taught it how to duel a human. Perhaps teaching a robot how to fight a human isn't the best course of action. Is there another way to show off the finesse and prowess of a machine arm wielding a sharp blade that doesn't involve training on a human? Have they not seen iRobot? The robot is a creation of Yaskawa, a multinational company that specializes in servos and motors for servos with roots in Japan. No shit, a killer katana-wielding robot has roots in Japan? I would have never guessed. The robot was made for their Yakasawa Bushido project. The company joined with Isawa Machi, a master of the Aijitsu sword fighting technique. Side by side, Machia and the Yaskawa Motoman MH-42 robot arm completed five challenges. First, slicing their way through flowers, fruit, pea pods, tatame, then they rapidly cut a thousand times into tatame practice targets. At the end of the last trial, Machi looks exhausted, but his unfeeling machine counterpart is ready to go as ever. Isn't it a good thing it can't walk yet? Maniacal laugh. Maniacal laugh. Maniacal laugh. Maniacal laugh. Maniacal And our next story, this sword's like totally tubular. Think carbon nanotubes are a newfangled thing? Think again. The Crusaders felt the might of the tube. <laughs> Insert dirty thought here. <laughs> when they fought against the Muslims and their distinctive patterned Damascus blades. Sabres from Damascus, now in Syria, date back as far as 900 AD. Strong and sharp, they are made from a type of steel called woots. Their blades bear a banded pattern thought to have been created as the sword was hardened and forged, but the secret of the sword's manufacture was lost in the 18th century. Materials researcher Peter Poffler and his colleagues at Dresden University, Germany, have taken electron microscope pictures of the sword and found that Wootz has a microstructure of nanometer-sized tubes, just like carbon nanotubes used in modern technologies for their lightweight strength. The tubes were only revealed after a piece of the sword was dissolved in hydrochloric acid to remove another microstructure in the sword. Nanowires are the mineral cementite, a type of iron carbide. Wootz's 
That's that's a funny funny word. Wood's ingredients include iron ores from India that contain transitional metal impurities. It was thought that these impurities helped cementite wires to form, but it was unclear how. Paul Fleur thinks carbon nanotubes could be the missing piece of the puzzle. At high temperatures, the impurities in the Indian ores could have catalyzed the growth of nanotubes from carbon in the burning wood and leaves used to make the woots, Poffler suggested. These tubes could then have filled with cementite to produce the wires in the patterned blades. If Poffler is right, nanotube researchers do not mind being preempted by Indian steelmakers. The important fact is that nanotubes were serving some very useful purpose even before they were discovered, says chemist Andre Klobistov of the University of Nottingham, UK. They should inspire us to look for new practical applications of these remarkable nanostructures. The next step, says Poffler, will be to take the latest carbon nanotube technology and work with bladesmiths to try to recreate the lost process.